It is a privilege to be here this morning with you all, and thank you so much for uh, your kindness. And uh, uh, boy, it is such a joy to be able to speak to men specifically. Uh, that's a joy of mine that um, there's something unique about that as you're especially training men uh, for leadership or whether it's for ministry. Uh, we all, all are part of this ministry, and so this is quite a joy of mine to be able to be here this morning with you. Uh, it's very interesting. Back last December, I actually preached this very topic uh, at a men's retreat. So this actually makes perfect sense to be able to do this this morning with you. Uh, and it was actually uh, with a men's retreat through Grace Community Church, which is the church I come from, uh, with our Joint Heirs uh, Fellowship Group, and we kind of just got a hodgepodge of other fellowship groups together and went to this camp, and some of you may know this camp. It's called Ironwood Christian Camp. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's basically you go out past Victorville, which is way out in the middle of nowhere, and then you go out past Barstow, which is out in the middle of nowhere, and then you have to get lost and then you pass the dead buzzard along the side of the road and then you find it's like it's literally there's nothing out there except for this camp but it is quite an amazing camp it's actually uh like a wild west themed camp and it is a man's man's camp man it is so cool you can bring your guns you can shoot you can you know play sports you can do whatever there you can you know do all kinds of wild west kind of themed things so anyways i don't know i just did a promo for their camp so there you go um not sure why but anyways you know if we ever do a men's thing or something and there's like a camp or something there's a there's a pretty cool camp out there out way past barstow and uh it's, uh, by the way, they also have this really good smoked meat that they do. Oh, man. Like, you don't usually think of camps being good for their food. Yeah, this camp's, they've got some pretty good food, which is uh, amazing. So, anyways, um, that's besides the point. Uh, with this opportunity this morning, as you can see with the handouts in front of you, I want to speak to you about a key biblical concept that you need to master to be God's kind of man. You need to master this concept to be God's kind of man. Um, in fact, you actually can't be God's kind of man without this. And it's the concept of fear. It's the concept of fear. And you can see that, of course, there in your notes. My premise this morning in our study together is that if you want to be God's kind of man in your home, in your work, in church, you've got to be a man who fears the Lord. You have to be a man who fears the Lord. And I'm specifically going to use the, the LSB term, Yahweh. Okay, I'm going to use that today, Yahweh. It's important. There's a reason why I'm using that this morning, and you'll see why later. Um, but that's important. And as many of you are probably aware, the fear of Yahweh occurs many times throughout Scripture. Many times. That phrase, fear Yahweh, fear the Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your uh, other English Bibles that are not LSB, okay? Capital, capital L-O-R-D. And I think perhaps the most notable passage that comes to mind is Proverbs 1-7. That's probably the one that we maybe think about the most. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. 
<laughs> like, what's wisdom? Yeah, the same thing, basically, right? If you're, it's the beginning of wisdom, and, and other passages say uh, wis, or it's the beginning of knowledge, and other passages say wisdom as well. And I think this verse is memorable, uh, perhaps it, because it's simple and yet profound, isn't it? It's very simple, isn't it? But there's a lot of profound meaning behind that phrase. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. It also sets the foundation for what it means to be wise. What does it mean to be wise? Fear Yahweh. Fear the Lord. And it's a theme that occurs all throughout the book of Proverbs, right? You've seen it many times in the book of Proverbs. In fact, you see it mostly in wisdom literature in the Old Testament. You remember these passages in Proverbs? If you search for her as silver and you seek for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of Yahweh, right? The fear of the Lord. And you will find the knowledge of God. That's Proverbs 2, verses 4 and 5. Proverbs 2, verses 4 and 5. How about Proverbs 3, verse 7? You probably know this one. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. I just realized when I get closer to this microphone, it gets really loud. There we go. Proverbs 8, verse 13 says, The fear of Yahweh is to hate evil. The beginning of wisdom, that's a, Proverbs 8, 13, The beginning of wisdom is to fear Yahweh, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's Proverbs 9, verse 10. Or how about Proverbs 15, verse 33? The fear of Yahweh is, it says literally, the discipline of wisdom and before glory, or before honor, comes humility. Before glory comes humility. And there are many other Proverbs that we could mention that talk about the fear of Yahweh in that way. But it is interesting that Solomon is not, Solomon being the author of Proverbs, right? He's not the first one to actually coin the phrase, fear of the Lord. He's not the first one. It's actually something that his father David taught him. Turn your Bibles over to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. This one may be the most iconic one that comes from David, specifically. Okay, Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verse 9. He starts out and says in this verse, Fear Yahweh. You, his saints, for there is no lack for those who fear him. Fear Yahweh, you, his saints. There's no lack for those who fear him. But even David, okay, so interesting. We see this with David here. But even David, when he's communicating fear of Yahweh, even before Solomon does, it's actually not something that began with David either. The fear of the Lord is not something that began with David either. So we have to go back further than that. This is actually something that goes back to the very first book of the Bible, which would be... Yeah, I was hoping you'd fall into the trap. Good. Perfect. It is. I mean, Genesis is the first book of... Right, in our Bibles, and it's the book of first things. But I'm actually thinking chronologically, which is the book of Job. Very good. Yeah, so you're well taught here, right? You know... You can almost think of Job as the prologue to the Bible. 
don't know if you've ever thought about it that way before. Job is the prologue to the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that as though it's like a lesser book. Sometimes we think a prologue is like something lesser, as though it's not inspired. No, it's just as much inspired as any other book. But Job has a unique place. Isn't that interesting that it's the first book written? You'd be like, no, Genesis belongs as the first book. It makes sense. In the beginning, God created, right? Makes sense. Right, I get that. But it wasn't the chronologically first book written. Why? Because there's something that sets up for the Bible. I've never thought about Job that way before. I mean, you can almost say, like, the way that the Hobbit sets up for the three-book trilogy of the Lord of the Rings, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien's trilogy, in the same way Job sets up for the story of the Bible. And the burning question in the book of Job, we often think, is, why am I suffering? What is suffering about? And that is a key question in Job. That's true. But that's not the main point of Job. I don't know if you've thought about that way before. Job's questions actually really reach their zenith when he begins to ask How can I understand God's ways even when He doesn't reveal things to me? He hasn't told me these things. In other words, you can encapsulate that into this. Where can wisdom be found? That is Job's most burning question in his mind. Where can wisdom be found? Job 28.28. You have to turn to this one. Job 28.28. Turn over there. This is really important to see. Then he said to man, this is Job saying what God is saying to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Hear that? Oh, now we're getting into where the fear of the Lord begins. This is where it begins. It begins in Job. And to turn away from evil is understanding. It sounds so similar to Proverbs, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like Proverbs 1-7? That's because, this is really cool to be able to make this connection, that's because Solomon is quoting Job. That's important. We always think it begins in Proverbs 1-7, right? Makes sense. Proverbs is where we get wisdom, so we start there. But Solomon is quoting Job. Remember, Job didn't have the benefit, and this is such an important point, I can't overemphasize this, he didn't have the benefit of written revelation from God. You have to factor that in to the entire book of Job. He didn't have written revelation from God. Genesis hadn't been written yet. Exodus hadn't been written yet. Daniel hadn't been written yet. The New Testament, obviously, hadn't been written yet. Solomon is recognizing that Job, with the very limited information that Job had about God, was hitting at something really important that we must listen to and understand. And Solomon, because he had more divine revelation than Job did, was going to take 
what Job said and then use the divine revelation that he understands and then expound upon that and even bring more clarity to the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord. So let's talk a little bit about what Job and Solomon are saying and what the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, means. I think it is intriguing. Um, did you notice... I didn't translate when we're talking about the fear of the Lord here in Job 28, 28. We're not saying the fear of Yahweh. Your Bible should not have capital L-O-R-D there. should be lowercase. That's because he's not using the term Yahweh. Now, Solomon does. Solomon uses Yahweh throughout his use of fear of Yahweh. So does David. He uses Yahweh too when he talks about the fear of the Lord. And Yahweh, we just you know need to make sure we understand this. That it's that personal, relational, intimate <coughs> name for God. Relational. You and me have a really close relationship name. I'm not going to tell other people this name, but with you, you're special. When people are talking the name of Yahweh, they have a special knowledge of God. But Job's is not Yahweh. Job is fear Adonai. It's taking it a step down. Adonai is that simple term meaning Lord or Master. I mean, David is called Adonai as Master in the Old Testament. My Lord, the King, right? They talk about my Master, the King. And that's important. You're like, well, what's, what's the point of that? Why is that? Why is Job doing that? Because it's clear that Job doesn't have the same level of personal, intimate knowledge of Yahweh God that the rest of the writers of Scripture do. And now you may be wondering, um, well, doesn't Yahweh, though, occur a lot in the book of Job? Like, I'm going to pull out my logos. I'm going to do a search on Yahweh. And I'm going to show you that Yahweh occurs a lot in Job. And you'd be right. 32 times it occurs in the book of Job. You're like, well, see, that pulled the rug out from underneath what you're saying, so it's not a big deal. And that does sound like Job is quite familiar with the name of Yahweh with 32 times in the book. But if you look at each instance of Yahweh in Job, you will notice that Yahweh is used 28 times in narrative. You're like, what does that mean? Who cares? In other words, no one in the story of Job uses the name of Yahweh except Job, and he does it only four times. No one in the story, none of Job's friends use the name Yahweh. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Elihu, none of them use the name Yahweh in anything that they say. As for Job, he uses the name Yahweh three out of his four times. He's only four times. He uses it three times in one verse. He actually uses it in a half of a verse all three times. And you know this verse really well. It's that part when he finally says, Yahweh gave and Yahweh took away. May the name of Yahweh be blessed. All right, you used up three. You only got one more, Job. So where is this other one? It's only one time that Job uses it outside of that phrase. Only one time ever in the conversation with his friends, right? 
only one time with his friends, and it's in Job 12, verse 9. You can look, peek over there with me. Job 12, verse 9. Who knows, or who does not know, that in all these things, that the hand of Yahweh has perhaps done this? That's where he uses the term Yahweh, the only time he uses it, with his friends. And I might think, I think, think about this here, uh, chapters 3 through 37, okay? It's that big section of Job. It's that long, arduous, deep, sometimes confusing philosophical and theological debate between Job and his friends, right? Which is pretty much the entire main corpus of the book. There's no mention of Yahweh except here in Job 12.9. And Job is saying something really important in this verse in Job 12.9 that's part and parcel of the entire book of Job that we must understand. It's something that may be unsuspecting to us, perhaps, because we often don't value chapters 3 through 37 a whole lot, I don't think. You know, it, it, we kind of want to prioritize the first two chapters of Job, then skip ahead to the 38 chapter where God actually appears and speaks to Job, and then Job repents, right? When you hear talks and sermons on Job, they're usually, like if you do like a scatter plot, it would be like heavy in the first two chapters, heavy in the 38 through 42, but not a lot in between. Why? Because we don't really understand a lot what's going on between chapters 3 to 37, and it doesn't seem to apply to us that much. But you can't understand the book of Job at all without understanding that difficult part between chapters 3 through 37. You have to understand that section. You're like, oh, we have to go through that. Yeah, so we're going to spend the rest of the time going through that. No, I'm just kidding. I can do that. But you really need to understand this verse, Job 12.9. So let's think about this. Where is this verse located? How does it fit in this really confusing maze of theological discussion? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the bad friends of Job, right, have a theological sparring match with Job, where Job, you know this, says something, then Eliphaz says something, then Job responds, then Bildad says something, then Job responds. Then Zophar says something. And then Job responds. And that's round one. Ding, ding, ding. Right? Round one. And then they do it again for round two. And then they do it again for round three. Okay? It's like a boxing match. And I've actually heard it said that their arguments in rounds one, two, and three go from pre-modern argumentation to modern argumentation to postmodern argumentation. When you're, when you're getting defeated in your arguments, you get really bad in your argumentation as you go along. Have you ever noticed that? Oh, science says. Actually, science says this. Well, then, you're stupid. You know? like, thank you. That's postmodern argumentation. And that's true. That's how their arguments get. They're like, literally, Job, you're dumb. At the end... In round three. I mean, Zophar gives up in round three. He's like, I'm not even going to talk to you anymore. He doesn't even show up. It's like Bildad and Eliphaz say something, and then Job, and then, like, Zophar? Oh, no, he's out. Okay. It's like, you're stupid, Job. I'm not going to talk to you. And then Elihu says something 
in chapter 32. Surprise! You didn't even know he was there. It's like, oh, hi, remember me? I'm the young guy over here. I thought I let the elder people talk, but now I'm going to say something. And then God enters the scene. No one responds to Elihu. Uh, by the way, a real quick note. I would argue that Elihu is probably the author of Job. There's a lot of good reasons why that's true, but it's besides the point. Okay. Uh, in the context of Job 12.9, let's get back to what this verse is saying. Job is responding to round one. Okay? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have all spoken once. Job is responding to Zophar most immediately, but he's kind of rounding out the entire argument of round one and addressing what these three guys are saying. Now, I've heard it also said this, and it makes a lot of sense. Eliphaz really prioritizes his argumentation in history. He's kind of like a historian, okay? He's kind of the historian. His arguments throughout Job are very historical in nature. Hey, look at history, Job! See how God has honored righteous people in the past, and God has made wicked people suffer. So he uses argumentation from history. This is the wisdom of Proverbs in many ways, by the way. We see this. Actually, Solomon uses this kind of argumentation, too. So don't bash Eliphaz just right away and be like, well, he's the bad friend of Job. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's actually got a really good point. He actually brings up stuff that Solomon talks about. He's super intelligent. These are probably, by the way, some of the smartest men in that time. So we have to be careful before we just bash like, well, these friends are terrible and I would never do anything like that. These guys were really, really smart guys. Bildad talks a lot about creation, nature, animals, plants. He's kind of like the expert biologist and botanist of his time. Look at creation, Job. See how nature testifies to God's immutable, unchanging ways? Does not bad fruit come from a bad tree? Duh! So, you deserve what you got. Bad circumstances. I mean, we know that even Jesus talks about that. Bad fruit from a bad tree, right? There's logic there. It's not quickly, can't always deconstruct that right away. His ways are faithful. Don't doubt his faithfulness, Job. Creation is stable. Don't destroy the stability of creation by saying that you didn't sin to cause this, bring this upon you, whatever suffering you have. Now, Zophar is probably the religious and philosophical zealot. He's thinking a little bit more ethereal and spiritually speaking. And he's basically like, God is unknowable, Job. He's unknowable. Shame on you for thinking that you can claim you're innocent before him. He knows all. You don't. It's simple metaphysics. All philosophers know this. So you must have done something even if you weren't aware of it. You must have done something evil. And of course the irony is like, well, if God's the only one that knows all things, then why do you so far think you know what's going on? But anyways, that's beside the point. And after their first round of confrontation, this is where chapter 12 resides in verse 9. And Job answers Zophar, and then, of course, he's answering all of his friends, and he begins to deconstruct their historical, scientific, and philosophical arguments. That's what he's doing. He's deconstructing them in chapter 12. And he's showing counterexamples. 
Not true historically. Let me show you a historical example where that's not true. Let me show you a scientific example where that's not true. Let me show you a theological argument in which that's not true. And he makes clear that the core issue in all of his friends' arguments, and this is so important, the key issue is that they have a lot of confidence in their knowledge of God and overconfidence in their knowledge of God. They are overconfident in their knowledge that is based in history, science, and philosophy. And they think that that has told them enough information about God. And Job schools them on the concept of epistemology. Okay, I'm using that big word, but you're like, if you don't know what that is, it's just a big word that just means the study of how we know things. How do we know what we know? And he, Job goes to town with these guys, and he says, how do you really know that about God? Remember, they don't have any written revelation from God. So the question is, how do you know that? Well, history says, yeah, but history also says this. How do you know that? Well, science says, well, science also says this. He begins to give these counterexamples from history and science and philosophy and deconstructs their arguments. And then it becomes clear that whatever Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have observed in their respective fields is not comprehensive knowledge. They don't have the comprehensive knowledge on those subjects. They thought that they did, but they actually don't. And they don't, they don't and they're not able to address all of the evidence. See? Not able to address all of, of the evidence. It kind of reminds me of COVID. You know, like, science says this. Well, science also says this, right? People were not addressing all of the evidence, Right? Not every scenario works out the way that they thought it, it did. And when Job brings up the counterexamples, that's why they get all like, you're stupid, Job. And it becomes clear that they've fallen into the trap that we often do too, which is to emphasize, oh, this is so important, to emphasize the evidence that we want to see, but ignore and downplay any evidence that doesn't comply with it. It's really easy, and that's all of us. We all tend to do that. And that's why Job says in Job 12, 9, who does not know in all these things that the hand of the Lord has done this? How do you know? How do you know that perhaps God was behind that or intending that? Who actually is tracking God's ways? Eliphaz? Bildad, how do you know God authored this to happen so far? Can you prove it historically, scientifically, philosophically? And can you demonstrate that it's not just a theory of yours, but can you actually provide concrete evidence that this is what God did, and it's what He intended, and it's something that is comprehensive, and can explain all of the evidence in the entire world, and not just some of it? And their arguments show that they can't. And therefore, Job is tapping into a major question. How do you know this about God? In other words, where can wisdom be found? That is the question of Job. You see how that kind of now naturally draws from that? Where does wisdom really come from? Where does it really come from? And that's why he concludes in Job 28, 28, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. And this helps us to understand 
why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Job is how we understand why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because Job is a perfect example of someone who lacked personal, intimate knowledge of God. Again, he only used Yahweh's name, what? Four times, right? In the entire book. Only once with his friends. He didn't know God as personally as other writers of scriptures did, who used Yahweh regularly in their writings, because he lacked that kind of relationship with God that would have afforded him wisdom and understanding from God. And then again, you might say, well, how did he lack wisdom? And again, it's it's simply put, just as we said, Job is the first book written in the Bible. He doesn't have any resource or any other written revelation to rely upon. And on top of that, words from God were scarce in those days. I mean, no written revelation, right? And maybe you're like, well, maybe they had some kind of divine encounter with God. And that could have happened, and that probably did happen from time to time. But uh, you don't have to turn over there, but even Eliphaz's description in Job 4, Job 4, verses 12 through 17, he indicates how bizarre spiritual experiences are and very difficult to determine whether they were really from God or whether they were from some other spiritual source, right? Demonic, right? Job didn't have codified wisdom from God by which to live his life like we do today. He didn't understand that God had a grand plan, right? We don't, not in the fullest sense that we do. Perhaps even a grand plan to, to turn evil for good. Not only to turn evil for good in Job's life microscopically, but just thinking macroscopically to turn evil for good in the salvation plan of the gospel to our history. Now, we might argue, I would kind of go back to the Genesis 3.15, right? Good oral tradition he probably had of Genesis 3.15, the fact that there was going to be a seed that would come and conquer. So there probably was that aspect that he understood. But that was not as much fleshed out uh, to know how extensive that plan would go and whom it would include, he doesn't have the benefit of all of that revelation. The book of Job then truly answers the nagging question of why we need divine revelation. See that? The book of Job really answers this nagging question, why do we need divine revelation? Why do we need the Bible? Why do you need the Bible? You go to Job. That's why. You, you figure out Job, and now you understand why you need the Bible. And in this way, Job is the perfect prologue to the Bible. It's like a pioneer without modern tools like matches and flashlights and GPS navigation and all that kind of stuff, right? Job was like that, forging a path that had never been tracked in human history before. He was going through this debate, trying to figure this out without any of those conveniences like Genesis or Deuteronomy or Proverbs or Daniel, the gospel accounts of Jesus, Romans, Revelation, with none of those. Job learned the hard way that wisdom only comes through the fear of the Lord. We know that wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord in our own lives because the Bible 
tells us so, right? We've learned it the easy way. But Job didn't just learn about it in a book. He lived it. He suffered it. He learned in the greatest pain without wisdom to ask perhaps the most important question, where can I get wisdom? God had him go before you and before me to experience the greatest pain so that he would ask the greatest question so that we would never take for granted the wisdom that we have from God. That we would never take for granted the Bible. That's what Job's there for. Don't take for granted the Bible. Don't ever do that. And yet, I think we'd still do. We take it for granted. And the hard thing today is to teach people how desperately they need the Bible. How desperately they need the Bible. How desperately they need divine wisdom from God. But Job is here to teach you that. And if the Bible itself is the very divine wisdom that God begged for, then you can understand how we need to cultivate a heart that begs for the Bible. We need to be cultivating in our own hearts a kind of heart that begs for the Bible. And this is why we need to define the fear of the Lord. We need to define that today. We need to define the fear of Yahweh because I think there's a lot of misconception out there on what the fear of the Lord really is. We often think of fear in a reactive kind of sense. We often think of fear in a reactive kind of sense. Scared, right? And to be clear, the Bible often talks about fear in that kind of a sense, right? It's not like it's like an untrue definition. I mean, for instance, I mean, if you look at the situation where Daniel finds himself in the the throne room scene of the Son of Man as he takes dominion over all the nations of the earth in Daniel 7, at the end of that, you would expect him to be like, oh man, so cool. Whoever the Messiah is, he's going to conquer all of our enemies. I love this. He doesn't do that. He says, as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly terrifying me. Like, wait, but you win. And my my appearance changed upon me. That's a reactive kind of fear. That's reactive fearing. Okay? He was scared of what he saw. And we're accustomed to that. We're accustomed to that kind of a definition. It's not always a a wrong kind of a fear, especially like Daniel, when we're reacting in fear to God. Okay? That's not necessarily bad. But the fear of Yahweh is not reactive. It's not reactive. It's a special term. It's not reactive. It's proactive. Okay? It's proactive. And that may sound odd, since we are so accustomed to thinking about fear in a reactive sense, but this fear, the fear of Yahweh is, listen, it's intentional, it's deliberate, and it's pursuing. That's the kind of fear we're talking about. And so now that I'm done with my introduction, (coughs) don't worry, we'll get out of here in a timely way. You guys have three hours, right? I'm just kidding. Um... I would define the fear of Yahweh this way, okay? And you got this on your sheet, so I'll, I'll go slow and I'll repeat it. Fear of Yahweh. It's a proactive, intentional, predominance. <laughs> like, please stop using big words. They're hard to spell. Proactive, intentional, predominance of our thinking toward Yahweh God alone. 
such that he is preeminent. He is preeminent. Receives our highest honor. Receives our highest honor. Never treated lightly. Never treated lightly. And maybe the most overlooked, but probably most important part of this definition, whose wisdom we must desperately seek. Whose wisdom we must desperately seek. Um, Let me repeat that one more time. A proactive, intentional predominance of our thinking toward Yahweh God alone, such that He is preeminent. He's the first. The only, the only one we give our highest honor to, so receives our highest honor, never treated lightly, and whose wisdom we must desperately seek. And I trust that you can hear in that definition the intentionality of that. There's intentionality there. It's not reactive. It's not so much being terrified or suddenly frightened by something. It's a pursuit It's a pursuit. It's the giving of our highest honor. It's a desperate move to elevate God to the most preeminent level of our thinking. That's the fear of Yahweh. And in this way, every decision that we make serves this fear. Everything that we we do, everything that we decide, every thought that we think, every word that we, we say, everything that we do serves this fear. He dominates our mind, not just reactively, but proactively. To fear Yahweh, then, requires your intentionality. It requires deliberate and regular action on our part. And by the way, this fear is not exclusive to the Old Testament. You know, I know the fear of Yahweh. It's like, well, that's an Old Testament term, right? It's actually a New Testament concept. Turn your Bibles over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll see this here. This is really cool to see Peter actually bring this up in this passage, especially in the context of suffering. Hey, that sounds familiar. That's like Job. And... In this suffering, he is going to describe this, the fear of the Lord. Verse 13, this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. And who is there to harm you if you should be, literally it says, if you should be zealots. <laughs> if you should be zealots of that which is good. But, you know, translations kind of clean that up and say, if you would be zealous for that which is good. But, and here's an interesting phrasing here. Even if perhaps you might suffer for the sake of righteousness. I'm kind of adding some words in there, but that's giving out the Greek idea there. If, or even like assuming for the sake of argument, even assuming for the sake of argument, you might suffer for righteousness sake. You are blessed. And here's the key. Do not be afraid of their fear and don't be troubled, but do what? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Listen to that intentionality. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctifying Christ as Lord in your hearts is equivalent to fearing Christ. Interesting, huh? Setting Him apart as Lord in your heart is actually the way that you fear and honor Christ. That's the fear of the Lord. In other words, Peter's saying, you fight the fear of men and the fear of circumstances 
by fearing Christ and fearing Yahweh. That's how you do that. Peter's saying, hey, don't be afraid of them and their, intim- and their intimidation and then their threats. Instead, sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord. Make Him preeminent. That's fearing Christ. That's fearing the Lord. Do you want to be God's kind of man? You need to fear Christ. Not in a reactive sense. In a proactive sense. Do you want to be God's kind of husband? God's kind of father? God's kind of leader in your home? At work or at church? You can't be a godly leader. You really can't even be really a good leader unless you make a daily intentional efforts to make Christ the preeminent master in your life. You can't. You cannot be God's kind of man until you fear God. As 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13 says, and by the way, I didn't put that in there because that's kind of like one of our verses here, first watch. That was already there back in December, so I had it first. Uh, Watch, it says, right? Watch. Listen to the intentionality. Watch. Beyond the watch. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. I think we as men all aspire to this. We want to be strong. We want to be like men. We want to be courageous. We want to be leaders. For us Christians, we want to be known as those who are selfless, sacrificial, leading by example. The question is, how do we get there? How do we get there? What does it take? And I want to develop four things. Like, man, are you just getting to the start of your sermon? No, no. This is kind of the end story. Four things that naturally derive from this definition of what it means to fear the Lord and we'll answer that question, how do we get there? How do we we be those kind of men? And I'll leave you with these four things this morning. Number one, to be a godly leader, to be a godly leader, you must be led. You must be led. Kind of (laughs) counterintuitive. To be a leader, you must be led. I love what Paul says to slaves and masters in Colossians. You know, it's, I know it's talking about slaves and masters. And it's like, well, maybe I can apply that in my job or something. But um, his exhortation to masters is really instructive for all Christians. It is amazing. Even though we're not really in a slave-master society today, to masters, in, uh, he says in Colossians 4, verse 1, Masters! Okay, there's that kurios term that is the same as the Adonai term in the Old Testament. See how you can use that for, like, people, too. Masters. Literally, it says, afford the righteous and the equal thing to your slaves. That's what it's literally saying. Afford the righteous and equal thing to your slaves. Um, It just basically means, hey, uh, present or give the fair thing to them. Give them the fair thing. Why? Why? Here's the key. I love this. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Hey, masters, you have a master. You have a master. Hey, everyone has a master, don't they? At one level or another. And the best masters, the best masters are the best leaders 
are those who are the best followers of their masters. Those are the best masters. Being a good leader is not a power trip. It's about learning how to be led well yourself so that you can lead others to do the same. You may have experienced this, or perhaps for most of us, maybe wish we have experienced this in our jobs, but the best kind of employers to work for are those who not merely make sound decisions for the company from up top, really high up here, but they actively care for and listen to those underneath them, right? That's some of the best kind of people to work for. You want to be that kind of a leader. Peter writes in First uh, Peter chapter 5, you know, to the elders, exhort the elders who are among you. Kind of skipping ahead to verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock among you, shepherd the flock. And here's, he's like, let me tell you what that means. Because a lot of times we were like, oh, shepherd the flock, I'm going to be the one that's going to be telling them what to do, right? That's shepherding the flock. Tell them the truth. Well, that's true. You need to tell them the truth. Absolutely. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. There we go, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, okay? That's basically AKA, not because you have to, okay? Not because you have to, but willingly, according to God, he says. Not for sordid gain, I'm going to get something out of this, but eagerly. And then here's, here's the kicker. Nor do it as those who are lording over those who have been allotted to you. Not just lording over them, but doing what? Being an example of the flock. Being an example. Peter is saying, you want to be God's kind of shepherd? Be a good sheep of Christ. Be a good sheep of Christ. Be an example. Show them how to do it and then help them to do it. You want to be a good leader? Be a good follower. You want to be a good master? Be a good slave. Learn how to lead with grace. Learn how to love those who are under you. That's how you be a good leader. As men, we all aspire to be leaders at one level or another, and that is why I think we all can take away something here. Even if you don't have people underneath you, you can still learn how to love people around you today and follow those who are over you in this kind of a way, being an example. That will teach you to be a good leader. So to be a godly leader, you must be led. Good. Hey, you're paying attention. Good. To be courageous, you must... Number two, to be courageous, you must fear. (laughs) Another counterintuitive one, right? This goes back to what we were talking about with the fear of the Lord. How do you put away sinful fear in your life? How do you do that? What is the Bible's way of putting away sinful fear? You cannot lead your family if you're enslaved to fear, by the way. You can't lead your family if you're enslaved to fear. It will make you indecisive. It will make you double-minded. Your wife and your kids will have a hard time following you as you wander through life at the whims of your fears. I think it's funny how the world at times actually believes and promotes the notion that you can be entirely fearless. That's hilarious. (laughs) Like, really? Uh, Sometimes they're the most fearful people, actually, when you really press their buttons. But... um, But that's impossible from a biblical definition of fear, actually. That's actually an exercise in futility to try to be entirely fearless. 
I don't know if you ever like tried, like, I'm not going to fear anything. It's actually impossible to do that. The only way you can be fearless is if you're God. He is the only fearless one. Listen, God made us so that we would fear. That's not a bad thing. That's not part of the curse. The question is, is not whether you're fearing or not, whether that's sin, like, I'm fearing, and therefore I'm in sin. No, 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 that's not the problem. The problem is, what are you fearing? Are you fearing the right thing? Are you fearing the right one? To be courageous, you must fear the right thing. In other words, you must fear the right person. You must fear God. You must fear Christ. That is biblical fear. And that's the right way to approach life. It's the only good way to approach life. Just as we saw in 1 Peter 3, remember, setting apart Christ by fearing Him. So to be a godly leader, you must be led. And to be courageous, you must fear. Good. Number three, to be wise, you must be desperate. To be wise, you must be desperate. I love this one. Remember the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, right? Proverbs 1, 7, Job 28, 28. We already looked at that. Why, though, you might wonder, why is the fear of Yahweh the beginning of wisdom? The beginning of wisdom. Why isn't it the main point of wisdom? Why isn't it the goal of wisdom? The end result of wisdom. It would make sense to be the end, not the beginning. You have to be able to answer that question in order to understand what the fear of the Lord really is. Why is it the beginning? If you can answer that question, you understand the fear of the Lord. Why is it the beginning? Because it's all in how Solomon and Job are defining the fear of the Lord. It's all in how they're defining it. They know that in order, order to understand the true meaning of life, to know why suffering happens and what God is doing about it, to answer questions about evil and morality, which the world really struggles to define, they need God's wisdom. They know that. But in order to get God's wisdom, He has to reveal it, right? He has to reveal that wisdom. But like Job, if God has scarcely revealed anything, then that leaves Job in quite a pickle, doesn't it? It leaves him, this is, this is the key, it leaves him desperate, doesn't it? It leaves him desperate. I need you to reveal, oh God. Listen, we need to be desperate for God's wisdom. We need to be desperate for God's wisdom. That's largely what it means to fear the Lord. How desperate are you to know God? How desperate are you to know what He has said? I'm not talking about desperate to read your Bible so that you can show how faithful you've been to your devotions. I'm not talking about that. No, I mean, are you desperate to understand him not just read oh check are you thirsting to figure out what God wants from you are you starving to know how to live how God wants you to live the queen of Sheba was desperate for wisdom wasn't she 
Why do you think she traveled hundreds, maybe thousands of miles to pay fortunes to hear Solomon's wisdom? She was desperate. She didn't have that wisdom. She hungered to understand. And as a woman, I think she puts many a man to shame today, sadly. I'm going to take this to another level. We sometimes measure our hunger for the Bible by how much we read it. Well, I read a lot of the Bible recently, so that's a good measure of my desperate knowledge for God. But that by itself, is that really the measure of man's hunger for the Bible? You know, you can actually sin and read the Bible at the same time. It's actually true. Like, oh, no, when I'm reading the Bible, I'm, there's no way I can sin. No, that's not true. You can sin and read the Bible all the time. There are a lot of scholars that hate God, and they read the Bible all the time. I would argue that there are many people who read, but they don't actually hunger for what they read. They read to check a box, or they read out of guilt, because I know that I'm supposed to be doing this, but I don't really care, or I struggle to care. They read because they know it's the right thing to do, and still they read without understanding and without pursuing understanding. No, I would argue that the measure of our hunger and desperation for the Word can be measured in other ways. Um, perhaps even as far as to say, how quickly do we presume to already say, I already know what the Bible says there. I don't need to go back and figure that out. I already know. And we don't actually invest the time to understand what God is saying. That is presumptuous, and that's not really hungering for God's Word. That's content with your own understanding. That's what the Bible says, you're wise in your own eyes, and you're not fearing the Lord. For instance, if you come to a passage and you think you already understand it with little personal investment, then that does demonstrate that you're wise in your own eyes. You're content with your version of God's message without diligent cross-checking, whether you're actually understanding God's written communication to you. And that's then a good way to measure your desperation or lack thereof. How faithful are you to lay aside your presumptions of God and lay them at the foot of the Bible? And then how hard do you work to really understand the Bible the way that God intended it? If you're striving to understand Scripture that way, then you are really desperate to know God's Word, and that's a good thing. So you need to be desperate for God's wisdom. You need to be desperate for God's wisdom. So, to be a godly leader, you must be? Led. Good. To be courageous, you must? Fear. Fear. Good. To be wise, you must be? Desperate. Desperate. Good. And last, and finally, to endure, you must be proactive. To endure, you must be proactive. Faith is not passive. Faith is not passive. It's active, isn't it? Endurance doesn't just happen. You must make it happen. Fearing God also is not passive. This is not a passive thing. It's just going to happen. It's active. It's proactive. It's intentional. It's deliberate. Pursue it and you will endure. Pursue this and you will endure. Make Christ your master every morning, every day, and you will grow. I promise you that. And the reason why I can promise you that it's because the Bible promises that, right? One more passage. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. If you're in 1 Peter, it's only a couple pages over. 
2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Oh, this is such a good verse. <clears throat> For this reason, rather, brothers, make haste to make your calling and election sure. By the way, that is some, this is kind of like one of those overlooked passages where you're like, how do I know if I'm saved? Like That's like exactly like what Peter's addressing here. Uh, make your calling and election sure. A.K.A., how do I know that I'm saved? Like with confidence, right? That's what this is talking about. Okay. What does he say? For by practicing these things, you will not stumble at any time. That's what it literally says in the Greek. He uses two double negative, uh, two double, two double negatives, not, not, and then he says at any time. So he's literally saying, you certainly will not stumble at any time. And the question is, well, you're like practicing what things? What things do I need to be practicing to ensure and have that kind of confidence? Well, it goes back to verses 5 through 7. Excellence, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. If you are diligent to do those things daily, regularly, incessantly, you... Listen to what Peter's saying. You can't stumble when you are doing that. That's what he's saying. That's why he uses two double negatives and at any time... (laughs) You will endure when you practice those things in the way that God has intended. God has given us, listen, all that we need for godly living in fearing Him. He's giving you everything that you need in fearing Him to be what you need to be. So, to be a godly leader, you must be led. Good. To be courageous, you must fear. fear. To be wise, you must be desperate, good. And to endure, you must be proactive, good. You were paying attention. That's great. Very good. It's not going to just happen to you. You must work at it. That's what it really means to be a godly man. Let's pray. Father, we need your help to be men of God. As Job teaches us, without divine revelation, we are lost. Like being stuck in a heavy fog on a frigid sea. We have no reference point to know where to go without your wisdom. No way to know what is right and what is wrong, what is wise, what is not, what you care about what you are doing. But you have communicated. You have revealed. You have made known. And that makes all the difference. Thank you for revealing wisdom to us. And thank you for giving us the path to wisdom. That we must seek you for it. We must fear you. Thank you for telling us the gospel plan, its beginning and its end. And thank you for including us in it. Help us to seek your wisdom and to seek your word as if our very lives depend on it. Because they do. Job teaches us that they do. 
bless our discussion together for the rest of this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.